Amen. Thank you, Rebecca. I really thought there would be a larger crowd. You guys don't make me very nervous. <laughs> That's good. Oh, they're coming. Okay. I'll get more and more nervous as people start trickling in. Uh, no, I feel good. Um, okay, I'm going to start by reading our passage, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to it. So, um, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also is faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house has itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house indeed if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Okay, so let's pray. Lord Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, I want to take a closer look at two things today. First, I think the historical background is important here because we're introducing Moses into the list of things to which Jesus is superior. I don't think it's very hard for us today to understand that Jesus is better than Moses. It's something we've always kind of known and understood. We've always known where they stand in the order. But if we could better understand the history and Moses' importance for the audience of Hebrews, we might then better understand the application that we can make for today. Okay, then I want to look at how God builds his household and what it looks like to live and endure in that household. So those are the two things, Moses and chiefly endurance. Okay, but first, if anything happens when you know you're going to be delivering a lecture, since about June, everything that has happened to me in my life has gone through this kind of like illustration mill in my brain. (laughs) It was totally exhausting to run everything through this mill. Uh, The TV I watch, the stories I hear, the books I read, the things my children say, it would all go into the mill uh, and come out judged good or not. But then I was talking to Brian um, about new seminary graduates, and he mentioned to me that new graduates from seminary are kind of advised not to use like 90% of what they now know in any given sermon. Um, They're just going to have to pick and choose and edit what to include. And I don't have knowledge to spare for sure, but I have illustrations to spare. About 90% of the illustrations I would put in wouldn't come out. but I'm going to start with one that does. <laughs> so here's another story. When I was growing up, there was a story that all my family told. It had to do with our Cherokee Indian ancestry. I'm from Oklahoma. And the story goes that during the Trail of Tears, which was the forced removal of American Indians from their original land to Oklahoma, my ancestors, the Cherokee Indians, were a part of that. They were there. I told this story in elementary school at Show and Tell. 
I told it in my college American Indian lit class. And I told my husband when we were swapping ancestry stories because we did that. <laughs> Not seriously. He's Choctaw. It doesn't matter. <clears throat> but one thing was we couldn't prove it because so my family's story went, we weren't officially on the rolls. And the reason for that was because my Cherokee ancestors didn't sign their names on the register of people who had walked the Trail of Tears at the end of it. Um, and then that became the official record, the government record of Indian ancestry, or so the story went. So earlier this year, one of my uncles underwent a DNA test. And then he shared the results with the rest of the family, which showed that, in fact, there is absolutely not a drop of Cherokee blood in our veins. <laughs> the story that we had promulgated for decades, and I had heard my entire life, I told my entire life, was no longer a reality. And as you can imagine, it was really hard to understand how to undo a lifetime of belief in it. It really took an act of will to dismantle all the parts of the story and actually apply the truth that we now knew. <clears throat> It's hard work. Um, and so it is here with the audience of Hebrews. They'd spent a few lifetimes following God's law given to them through Moses. And now the hard work was coming to them in living out their new Christianity. Because of the role Moses played in their history, leading God's people out of slavery in Egypt, giving them the law, taking them to the promised land, it's hard to overestimate Moses' importance to these people. I'm going to go way back for a minute and discuss who we're talking about and the origins of this religion called Judaism they practiced before becoming Christians. Um, because we're talking a lot about them all throughout Hebrews, and I want to make sure that we're all caught up on the historical facts. The audience that the writer of Hebrews is writing to is a group of people who were possibly living in or around Rome. Judaism is the name of the religion that they had practiced for generations, and sometimes Judaism is simply referred to as the law. Moses, then, was the figurehead of Judaism because Moses was the prophet through whom God spoke to provide the law to his people. And so you'll remember that Moses went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God, and God spoke to Moses and gave him this law. And then that law was transcribed and was known as the Torah, the Torah was what the people had known as God's word written to them for a very long time. And it technically comprised and comprises the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what they read. Um, in Old Testament terms, the Torah told them exactly how to live and how to make atonement for their sin. As the deliverer of the law, Moses came to represent a sort of quantifiable religion that they could well understand. Obviously, they couldn't keep the law. They couldn't perfectly obey the law. But these were not new believers in that faith of some kind was important to them. It was part of who they were. They know they needed salvation. They had practiced Moses' law for generations, and it had a sort of old comfort. They knew exactly what was expected of them, exactly what was required of them to be considered religious and to be considered righteous and to be considered okay. 
So then at Trinity on Sunday, providentially, I learned the reason, one of the reasons the law existed in the first place. Steve Persifield was preaching to us on Genesis, and he tied it beautifully to Hebrews, and it was so good, I want to recap it here for you. He said, the law was given to God's people as a temporary solution to the problem of how to enter into the holiness of God. The law was a provision of God to draw us to him, because otherwise we wouldn't know how to do it. But the law was never meant to be permanent. God knew we would be unable to keep it, just like Adam and Eve hadn't been able to do what God said in Genesis. And instead of leaving us on our own, God saw our need. And so he provided the solution, the permanent solution. And the permanent solution was Jesus. The temporary solution was the law. The permanent solution was God himself. And it was always meant to be this way. Jesus then fulfills Judaism. And he replaces the one who presented the law to them, which was Moses. Moses was good to them. They saw him as good. And Jesus then is better. Jesus is the giver of that salvation. Okay, it's good to know how history applies to the progression of events because now in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, we know a little bit more about who this is written to. They are new Christians. They've converted from Judaism. And now we found out they're tempted to go back to Judaism They were in danger of turning their backs on Jesus to return to an empty religion. Now, why would they be tempted to go back, though? They thought life was getting hard with Jesus. It was hard because, number one, they were actually being acutely challenged in the climate in which they lived. Their everyday lives were practically more difficult. We'll discuss that more in a moment but their lives were practically more difficult and their problems were real and they wanted an easier life. One commentator said that these Jews had been formally cut off from Judaism because of their newfound Christian faith, isolated from family and friends, and some of these Jewish Christians felt bereft and alone. In their time, Rome Rome was the place and Caesar was the king. If they were living around the epicenter of political and earthly power, then that must have had a big impact on the world in which they lived. And that world, Rome, was hostile toward Christianity. Their life could become immediately more peaceful outwardly if the religion they practiced was accepted by the world they lived in. Judaism was accepted and Christianity was not. If they would just forsake Christ, they could have an easier life. And it's ironic because if they commit spiritual suicide, as Darwin calls it, he calls it spiritual suicide. If they commit spiritual suicide for an easier life, they will have no life at all. And so sometimes when things don't go right, we wonder, is this how it's supposed to be? Things for them weren't going very right. At least that was their perception. Shouldn't this be easier? Shouldn't this be clearer? Maybe they thought we should go back to our old way. And so number two, they were forgetting Jesus. They were drifting, as we've heard in weeks past. This is the bigger point and the thing that made their lives double hard. Following Jesus for them was new, and they were becoming unsure. 
But the critical point for them is that you can have a hard life and have Jesus and have hope. But you can't have a hard life, forsake Jesus, and have hope. If you forget Jesus, there is no hope. There is nothing. So the writer puts forth in beautiful ways the superiority of Christ so that they might be won over by his beauty and his very self. Don't focus on your life and try to fix your life. Fix your eyes on Jesus, he is saying. The way forward to life is not back to Moses and the law, but in the person of Christ. So for them, following Jesus would require faith and perseverance. Um, and just earlier, I found, I, I read this in, in a magazine. I thought it was so good. It's, it's saying perfectly what I couldn't say as perfectly. So I'm going to read um, an excerpt for you um, from a, an interview with Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Okay, and she's talking about um, faith and what that looks like in the midst of everyday life. So listen to this. Faith does not make the facts of life disappear. Faith puts them in a new light, in a new proximity to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to make ways of escape that did not exist before, to give hope in the midst of hopelessness, and to change our hearts, our enemies, and our futures. And I loved that because um, we're talking about how these Jewish Christians were being challenged in their everyday lives. The facts of life for them were difficult. Um, but faith puts those facts in a new light. And I think that's well said. So following Jesus would require faith and perseverance. And the writer of Hebrews is reminding them that it's Jesus's merit and encouraging them to stick with it because now they must endure to receive the fullness of that hope. I love also what Darwin said about this. He said, returning to Judaism is not an option. It is not okay as long as you don't go pagan on us. Christ was the whole reason for the Old Testament. The whole reason for priests and kings and prophets and a tabernacle and a temple and sacrifices and everything else is that they were shadows of Christ. Without Christ, none of it means anything. So they had to change the way they worked out their faith. They had to do things differently from the way that was passed down to them. We all know that must have been hard. They now had to choose between Moses' way of life and Jesus' way of life. Moses' way was much more familiar to them, and it was much more accepted in the world they found themselves in, but it had become empty. Jesus is better even better than Moses, who they held in such high esteem. Okay, a few years ago, my husband Blake went to this thing called a leadership development conference at UCLA. When he got home, he told me about one of the workshop-type exercises that he did, and he usually is not a big fan of these sorts of things. So it was funny that he was telling me about it in the first place. So in this one exercise, they had to go around the circle and state an idea. After a person said something, the next person had to follow with, yes, and, and state their own idea. <clears throat> they would just build on each other no matter what the person in front of them said. Blake told me they would say the most ludicrous things and the next person would say, yes, and, and they would just go on. You'll know exactly why I told you that story in just a second, because I want to talk now about what becomes of Moses. 
In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul sheds a little more light on Moses and Jesus and the glory that we see mentioned in verse 3 of our passage. But now here's 2 Corinthians 3. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... The ministry of righteousness much, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. <clears throat> There's a lot of glory there. This is kind of like a yes and type of situation. God gave his law through Moses, and that was good. And it came with glory. And then he fulfilled the law through his son, and that was better, and it came with more glory. Moses faithfully fulfilled his mission. Yes, and then God sent his son to do the complete work, to finish what the law couldn't ultimately do. So Moses himself is still good and acknowledged as having shared in the glory of the law and of the glory of God. He retains his dignity as one who is faithful to God. In verse 5, he is called faithful in God's house. We can, in fact, see that two times Christ is called faithful and two times Moses is called faithful. That's a powerful endorsement of Moses and the reward for doing what God had for him. This admonition from the writer of Hebrews is as much for us now as it was for them then. Even if the symptoms are different, the sin is the same. We need to get good at noticing when we put our trust in an inferior form of good. Moses and the law were once good and had the trust of these Jewish Christians. But now that Jesus has suffered the wrath of our inability to keep the law, he is better. The ministry of righteousness is better than the ministry of condemnation as the law is renamed in 2 Corinthians 3. It's amazing that Jesus understands this temptation of ours to look to other things and still he has provided the way out for us. Therefore, we are part of the household of God if we cling to Jesus and endure because even this is possible through him. That is where we want to be But think about the subtle and familiar and insidious ways that we look to things other than Jesus to build our life around. If this were written to us today, what would it say? What is our Moses? Whom do we trust? What are we following that is an inferior form of good? Have we not just traded the Mosaic law for the law of perfectionism? Or the law of achievement? How often do we try to work out our own salvation from a bunch of rules and standards that we make up ourselves? Last year, I heard about a book called Grit. And I completely recoiled the, the first time I listened to this author on the news talk about her book. Um, I think I may have changed my mind. I understand it more. But listen to the first part of its blurb on Amazon. In this instant New York Times bestseller, 
Pioneering psychologist Angela Duckworth shows anyone striving to succeed, be it parents, students, educators, athletes, or business people, that the secret to outstanding achievement is not talent, but a special blend of passion and persistence she calls grit. Um, the reason I didn't like this at first, I think, is because it, to me, just promoted um, our culture's love of success and achievement. And I wanted to go away from that. There are so many buzzwords in this blurb, striving, succeed, outstanding achievement. Those are the things that we look to, I think, in our culture. Um, but what she's suggesting the secret is, is the grit, not some innate talent or some kind of found individual specialness, but a motivation to go on toward the goal. And like her, at the heart of what Hebrews is saying is that it is endurance and not perfection that will be our success. Hebrews says we must hold fast to Jesus alone for our salvation and we can endure we are exhorted to live out this true grit by putting our faith in our Savior. Clinging to Christ is how we exhibit this grit, by knowing Jesus as our hope for salvation and nothing else. We will endure trials and temptations, and life may get hard, but our outstanding achievement will be imperfect endurance. Because Jesus is the perfection for us, and because Jesus knows this is who we are. We will succeed if we boast in Jesus and nothing else. And I want to take a moment before we pray and say to those of us who feel that you are struggling with faith, that Jesus doesn't measure you by how victorious you are at feeling faithful. We often still think it's our own ability to muster the amount of faith necessary for endurance. Ultimately, it's not the strength of our faith anyway that matters. It's the strength of the object of our faith, which is Jesus. God will provide for you. But if you're here, if you're searching, if you're coming to church and Bible study week after week, you are exhibiting faith. So take heart and be encouraged. Jesus sees you and he knows. Okay, let's pray. Father, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that today we could read it and talk about it and hear it. By the power of your spirit, may it do us much good. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.